This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. The idea that the public and the press should have access to documentation about the workings of government on all levels dates back to this country's founding. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guarantees the freedom of the press in the United States. And here in Florida, the first open meetings and public records laws were passed in the early 1900s and strengthened over the decades. But it's becoming increasingly difficult to gain access to government records that should be available under Florida's Constitution. And with shrinking newsrooms, there are fewer resources being devoted to deep investigative journalism than in the past. On today's show, we're sitting down with Barbara Peterson. She's co-founder and executive director of the Florida Center for Government Accountability. Peterson has deep knowledge about issues around transparency in government here in Florida. She has more than 25 years of open government law and nonprofit administration experience, including her 20 years at the First Amendment Foundation in Tallahassee. She stopped by our studio back on February 1st while on the Florida Gulf Coast University campus to give a talk titled Holding Local Governments Accountable Through Investigative Journalism and Freedom of Information Requests. Let's hear that conversation now. Barbara Peterson is co-founder and executive director of the Florida Center for Government Accountability. Barbara, welcome back to the show, and it's nice to meet you in person. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So start with some basics here. Tell us about the Florida Center for Government Accountability, you know, how long it's been around, and what kind of work do you focus on? The Florida Center is is unique. I don't think there's another organization like us, not just in Florida, but anywhere in the country. We're a small nonprofit uh, and we do two things. We do investigative reporting. Um, there's been a real uh, loss of investigative reporting as newspapers are shrinking and bottom lines are getting tighter and tighter. One of the things they're not doing is investigative reporting. It takes time, lots of resources, both in terms of time and money. And so we're trying to fill that gap, particularly at the local level. So. We do uh, investigative reporting. We've launched a new site called the Florida Trident. Uh, In the next week or so, it will have its own website. It's currently a page on the center's website. Uh, And we also assist other reporters and citizens, but mostly reporters. uh, We assist them in their reporting. If they're having trouble getting public records, they come to us and then we make the public records request for them or we make it on our behalf. And then if it requires a little back and forth, we do the back and forth. And in some cases, we will actually uh, litigate in order to enforce the public's right of access. So we absorb all of those costs. And then when we get the records, if we're making the request on behalf of a reporter, then we provide the records to the reporter first. Once the reporter has done her reporting, then we take those records and put them in a drop box and anybody who wants them can have access to them. And you have a very small team, right? I think you kind of glazed past that, but you yes. don't. You have a very small team that's doing this, you know, Amazing lot, lot work. work. Uh, uh, we have, including myself, uh, we have three people. I have one woman uh, who does administrative and web work. If you count her, we've got four people. We all work part-time. We all work for peanuts. Uh, And we do this because we see the need for it. And the need is really crucial. We're not yet three years old. Uh, We have filed seven lawsuits. 
Uh, we've won two of the, well, we won a lawsuit. We filed against Governor DeSantis for access to the migrant flight records, the Martha's Vineyard flights. We won that lawsuit, and we settled a lawsuit. Uh, we filed against the Department of Health for access to COVID records. But you also demonstrate how understanding the law and being diligent can have big effects. You don't need a Washington Post-sized newsroom to get some things out into the public. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that our mission is government accountability, to give the public the information the public needs in order to hold its government accountable, inform the voters when it comes time to, to step into the ballot booth. You know, if you stand up at a school board meeting, you want to have knowledge about what the school board's doing. So that's what our goal is, is to, to provide citizens with the information they need in order to hold government accountability. And we see that as a team effort. That's why, you know, I don't know another news organization that would be sharing its records and its information with another news organization. But we think that that is really important because we're all shrinking uh, and, and nobody's got the money. But if we pool our money, if we pool our resources uh, and you take advantage of our expertise, we take advantage of your expertise, we're able to accomplish far more. Uh, Florida has relatively broad constitutional guarantees for open records. Can you explain what that stems from? Um, I heard you talking about Section 1 of Article 24 of the Florida Constitution. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that means and, and sort of the scope of, of where we stand in Florida? Well, it, you know, it's interesting because Florida has some of the oldest open government laws in the country. Our public records law, which is Chapter 119 of the Florida Statutes, was enacted in 1909. Our first meetings law was enacted in 1905. And then there was a, a big issue uh, about access to legislative records. This was in the late 80s. And uh, the case went all the way to the Florida Supreme Court. And the court said that the legislature was not subject to the public records law. And for that matter, basically nobody else was. <laughs> it was only constitutional officers. So that's, you know, the cabinet, the sheriff, the school boards, uh, tax collectors. So all of your city and county governments basically, uh, the court said, was n were not subject to the public records. So they kind of turned everything on its head. And in reaction and in response, a group of people got together and started working on language to get a constitutional amendment that would guarantee access to public records. The court came back, vacated its that original decision, came out with a new, more reasoned decision, and the legislature, Gwen Margolis was the Senate president at the time, the legislature said, we'll do this. We'll get a joint resolution and put it on the ballot for the 1992 general election. So it was that provision was approved by 87% of the voters, which is an extremely high number. Almost unthinkable in it, today's politics. Correct. It's 87% it, of, the, of the voters approved that uh, amendment. I'm trying to think what did the others not see that was, you know, why did they vote against it? But uh, it's Article 1, Section 24 of the Florida Constitution. Paragraph A gives us the right of access to the records of all three branches of state government, which is unique. 
there are only about six other states that have constitutional amendments, and ours is extremely broad. So paragraph A is the records of all three branches, so the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Paragraph B gives us the right of access to the meetings of state agencies, local governments. The courts are subject to the First and Sixth Amendments of the U.S. Constitution that guarantee open proceedings. And then the legislature has a a provision in Article Three of the state constitution that regulates access to legislative meetings. So basically, there is a constitutional right to the records and meetings of government in Florida. And most importantly, I think, uh, is another provision in Article One, Section 24, that is a standard for the creations of exceptions to that constitutional right. Only the legislature can create an exemption. So there's no balancing of interests by a, a record custodian. And the exemptions, the proposed exemptions must be narrowly tailored. They must contain a specific statement of public necessity. Why do we need this exemption? And then they can be no broader than the stated purpose. So that became effective. It was on the ballot uh, in, in November of 1992, became effective July 1st, 1993. And then in 2002, There was another amendment, uh, another provision on the ballot that made it, supposedly, made it harder for the legislature to create new exemptions. It required a two-thirds vote by each chamber. So it's pretty great. Um, Not to say it's working particularly well right now, but because we're seeing that legislators and elected officials are just ignoring basically that constitutional provision. They've uh, carved out lots of exceptions over the years, right? I think you said like 1,200 or thereabouts. It's it's in the 1,200 range. Uh, and there are 70 bills filed this session that would create new exemptions to the public records. Um, the Governor DeSantis's travel records are part of this exemptions debate right now. Can you explain what you know unfolded? It all started with some legislation that basically exempted all of his travel records as well as um, visits to the governor's mansion. It also applied to some other state constitutional officers, but now it's being litigated against. Can you try to distill that down and tell me where I was right or wrong? Uh, It is, I think, one of the worst exemptions I've seen, and I've been doing this for 35 years. And it was an exemption that was passed during the legislative session last year. Just before the governor declared he was his candidacy for, for the presidency. And so it exempts all of the records that relate to the governor's travel, uh, and not just the governor, the Supreme Court justices, I think the uh, Speaker of the House, the Senate president, so upper echelon. Uh, it also exempts uh, information about anyone who visits his office, and anyone who visits the mansion. And it applies retroactively. As far back as records exist? As far back as records exist. So remember I said that every exemption has to have a public necessity statement. 
the statement was that we need this for security. We need to protect the security of the governor. Well, we all agree that security of the governor is an important thing. But this exempts all of the records. So how is there a security concern for a trip he took six months ago? How is it a security concern for trips that Lawton Childs took when he was governor? He's no longer with us. So it isn't just the sitting governor. It's, it's governors. governors. It's Supreme Court justices. It's, right. It's okay. And so it's a pretty fascinating story. So this passed. Um, the exemption passed in the last legislative session. So that would have been 2023. Uh, there were, at the time, a lot of pending public records requests for the governor's records. And I can't remember if I heard it or read it. But FDLE, which is the custodial agency for these records because they provide security for the governor, said that they needed the exemption not for security but because they were getting so many public records requests they couldn't handle it. So let's create an exception to the Constitution or hire another clerk to help you with that overflow. So a lot of people, news outlets mostly, had made public records requests. Some of them, as I said, were waiting months and months. I know of at least one request that's 14 months, 16 months old. And the Washington Post had made a request and for those records and got tired of waiting. And so in Florida, Unfortunately, there's no enforcement mechanism in our law, and the only way to force an agency to produce records that are subject to disclosure is to file suit in civil court. So the Washington Post filed suit in civil court complaining about the delay, saying it was unreasonable under the law and that they had a right of access to those records. The judge in that case agreed and ordered the release of the records. And then there is, as was reported by the, the Tallahassee news media, there was a, a dispute within FDLE about what records should be released and what was exempt. And one of the people, I think she was an assistant general counsel, I'm not sure of her title, worked on the legislation and was arguing that most of these records had to be released. The governor's office intervened and said no. The chief of staff and the deputy chief of staff, uh, the, the chief of staff was allowed to retire. The deputy chief of staff was fired. And the attorney who was arguing for release was denied a promotion and a raise. So this was direct interference from the governor's office with the custodial agency arguing with the woman who drafted the legislation. Hmm. To what purpose? Records that of governors, the governor's travel from two months ago, three months ago, even two weeks ago, where is the security concern there? It is simply a way to control what is being reported about the governor. Uh, you know, there been now, because of all the financial disclosure forms, the campaign financial disclosure requirements, we're finding out all sorts of information that should be available under Florida law 
but because of this exemption is not. What's the state of that lawsuit that the Washington Post filed? Is it still... The Washington Post won and the, uh, the governor's people have appealed. So it's on appeal it's now. It's on appeal. Um, another story that you, uh, the Florida Center for Government Accountability, was instrumental in breaking was the story of now former Republican Party of Florida Chairman Christian Ziegler. Can you explain how that all started? I think listeners are now familiar with that story, him and his wife and the, the situation. Right. Um, it was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, our public access director, uh, Michael Barfield, lives in Sarasota. The Ziegler's lived in Sarasota. And Michael heard a rumor that Christian Ziegler had been charged and was being investigated for sexual assault. Um, not charged, accused. He was accused of sexual assault, and, and the case was under an investigation. And I've read since that a lot of other media people heard the same rumors and just ignored it. Uh, Michael started making public records requests and was able to confirm the fact that Mr. Ziegler was being investigated uh, for sexual assault. Uh, allegations. Those charges, the sexual assault charges, have been dropped. But he's now, he's still under investigation for video voyeurism because Ziegler recorded his encounter with the woman without her knowledge or consent. Uh, and video voyeurism is felony. Um, you're looking at, you know, up to five years in jail, I think. Uh, and, and information is still coming out. We're getting tips on, on – we're not reporting everything we're hearing or learning, uh, but tips are continuing to come out and we continue to make public records requests. Um, I heard you on a different interview say that most of the work that you do stems from tips from the public. Is that true? That's correct. Uh, and this is this is when I worked at the First Amendment Foundation. I worked at the First Amendment Foundation for 25 years, and I talked to citizens all over the state of Florida, and they were get really frustrated because they would have these great stories, you know, about corruption or about self dealing, and they'd go to their local media, and nobody'd pay any attention to them. And I frequently then would help them make the public records request to prove what they were saying. Uh, and But still, they got nowhere. And so we decided in, in, in designing and developing what's now the Florida Center for Government Accountability, we decided that that would be one of the things we needed to do. Um, yes, we hear rumors. Yes, you know, there are stories, so many stories you can't possibly cover them all. But to give citizens a way to have their voices heard. One of the tips we got early on was about a charity in Sarasota. The tip was this, the people who started this charity, since they started the charity, their standard of living has increased dramatically. That was the tip we got. And it led, so I, I started looking at public records, online public records, and was finding a lot of very strange things. For example, as a charitable organization, you are required to register with the Department of Agriculture 
if you're going to solicit donations, agriculture and consumer services. They were not registered. Uh, they had not filed a tax return uh, in five years with the IRS, a Form 990. Those are public record. They had not filed a Form 990. And then I started looking at their corporate structure. And in Florida, a nonprofit organization is required to have a minimum of three board members. They had three and only three. And someone had told me once, if there's only three, be suspicious. So it was the wife, the husband, and the wife's father who had been dead since 1983. So they had three, but one of them wasn't alive. Hmm. And they had been soliciting a lot of money. And so we reported, we did two stories on this, uh, and one of our very first stories, uh, and it ended up with the Department of Agriculture investigating, and charges were brought against both of the principals, the husband and the wife. Another tip we got was about a water management district, a small district in Broward County, uh, and its executive director. When our news editor, Bob Norman, started looking into it, he found that the executive director had given himself $16 million in no-bid contracts, that he had sold a piece of property on behalf of the district and pocketed $250,000 as realtor's commission. All of this very underhanded self-dealing. Uh, and we wrote a series of stories on that. And that ended up with a call from a local legislator for an audit and legislation filed to close the loopholes in state ethics laws that he was uh, taking advantage of. So it, it has its effects. With Christian Ziegler, our reporting led to his ouster as chair of the Florida GOP. He had been under an investigation. We reported that story late November, and he had been under investigation since early October. You guys are nonpartisan, though, Correct. meaning that had he been the chair of the Democratic Party of Florida, you would have done exactly the same exactly thing. Exactly the same thing. And, and you know, open government issues, when we're talking about the public records law and we're talking about exemptions, those are nonpartisan issues. So it's not that one party pays more attention or supports the laws more than another. It's, you know, we get support from both sides of the aisle and we get bad exemptions from both sides of the aisle. And our criticisms of Governor DeSantis and his administration have nothing to do with politics. It has to do with his attitude towards open government and what he is doing that we believe violates the law. Um, in the time we have left, which is about five minutes or four minutes, um, can we just walk through if a person wants to file a public records request, how does that work? It's actually very simple. Uh, you make the request. So if you want, say, the school boards, all record from records of the school board about travel, you can make that request over the phone. Uh, you can make it via email. You can send a letter. However you want to make it. Do you have to be precise in what you're looking no, for? No, you do not have to. I Now, you should be as precise as you can be, but no. You can say, I want all travel records or I want all travel records for this period of time. Uh, I always recommend that you make your request in writing only because you then have anecdotal evidence of what you requested and when 
you requested it. You do not have to identify yourself. Uh, and then the agencies, in this case the school board, the example I'm using, is required to acknowledge that public records request promptly and in good faith. Yes, Barbara, we have your public records request. It's going to take us a couple of days. Uh, contact us on Friday and we'll let you know when you can expect the record. Or, Barbara, we don't have those records. You're going to have to go to the county to get those records. Um, so that's a prompt good faith response. The agency then has a reasonable period of time in which to produce the records. And that shouldn't be too long, depending, it depends in large measure on, on the request and how many responsive records. Uh, but if you're asking for the travel records for a two-month period, that shouldn't take long. Uh, and then the agency can charge you a fee for the records. Uh, the fee must be reasonable. It must be based on actual cost incurred. I always suggest that a requester, when if they're assessed a fee, ask for a written detailed estimate of the fees and then an explanation for those fees. If an agency denies a request, and they can deny a request if there's a specific statutory authority. The only thing I could think of in a travel record, if it's not the governor's, the only thing I could think about for a school board travel record that would be exempt would be maybe a social security number. So if it contains exempt information, the agency is required to redact or delete that which is exempt and provide access to the remainder. If they assert an exemption, my suggestion is that you go back to them and say they're required to give you the exact statutory citation. I want you to put this denial in writing, and I want you to explain why you think this exemption applies. They're required to do that if they're asked. So they can always, you know, email us. We can help. You'll um, walk people through this process. We walk through it, and we have on occasion we'll sometimes make a public records request for a citizen that's worried about blowback or re retaliation or if they're having trouble getting a record. And it's interesting sometimes why these things are being delayed. And frequently it's because the custodial agency either doesn't understand the law but more and more common these days is they don't want you to see what's in the records. We were basically out of time, but just for context, in that case that you were, you know, the, the, the example you were giving of the school board, um, are we talking tens of dollars? Are we talking hundreds of dollars? Like what would, a, if a listener's listening and they're like, I wonder what she means by cost. I mean, how much would be, you know, if it wasn't super complicated, that takes a long time and requires a bunch of work on their end. Is it, is it, Tens of dollars, hundreds of dollars? It, it should be dollars. Like I would say, again, saying there's 10 records uh, and they have to redact a social security number on all 10. The social security number is going to be in the same place on every record. So that's not going to take much time. Uh, and I would be suspicious if it was more than... Ten, fifteen okay. dollars. Well, that's just good for people to know. I don't think right. a lot of people really have any. They, they may think it's five thousand dollars. Sometimes knows? it you know? is five thousand dollars, but again, it's the size of the request. We have a request pending. Uh, we requested emails from a city, and we got a bill. It's thirteen hundred records, and we got a bill that seemed high to us. 
So we asked the city if it deduplicated the responsive records because, you know, if I'm sure it happens here to you, you know, somebody sends an email to the entire staff. So there are 10 copies of the same email. We want that deduplicated. We only want one copy. And that can reduce the cost. So if you request 1,300 records and 500 of them are duplicates, that's going to make the cost go up to get the records. Well, we're unfortunately out of time. We'll talk to you again on the show, I'm sure. Uh, Barbara Peterson is co-founder and executive director of the Florida Center for Government Accountability. She's on campus today to give a talk. Barbara, thank you so much for your time and the work you guys do. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Barbara's talk was titled Holding Local Governments Accountable Through Investigative Journalism and Freedom of Information Requests. It was part of Florida Gulf Coast University's Provost's Seminar Series and the Naples Discussion Group. Our conversation was recorded on February 1st. If you missed any of the show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. And just a quick note, there are still some slots open to record in StoryCorps' mobile Airstream studio that's setting up at the Alliance for the Arts in Fort Myers. They'll be collecting stories beginning February 15th until March 15th. You can find a link with more information and to register for a slot with the post for today's show at wgcu.org gcl or on the front page of wgcu.org or on StoryCorps' website. This is your chance to sit down with a loved one or a friend to have a conversation of your choosing that you'll then have the option of adding to the American Folklife Center archives at at the Library of Congress. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Bianca Massoni. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.